Second Kings chapter 4, starting at verse 1. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he passed by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed, a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day, when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now, what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her, Elisha asked. Gehazi said she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. But the woman became pregnant and the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. He said to his father, my head, my head. His father told a servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. That is all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, oh look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, no, leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said, didn't I tell you? Don't raise my hopes. Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone you meet, and if anyone greets you, do not answer, and lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. 
Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy has not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got onto the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in that region. When the company of the prophets was meeting with him, he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and cook some stew for these prophets. One of them went out into the fields to gather herbs and found a wild gourd plant and picked as many of its gourds as his garment could hold. When he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. The stew was poured out for the men, but as they began to eat it, they cried out, Man of God, there is death in the pot, and they could not eat it. Elisha said, Get some flour. He put it into the pot and said, Serve it to the people to eat, and there was nothing harmful in the pot. A man came from Bel Shalisha, bringing the man of God twenty loaves of barley bread baked from the first white corn, along with some ears of new corn. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men? his servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. This is God's word. If you are joining us, we're uh, just spending a few weeks in these early chapters of 2 Kings 1 to 8. Elisha's the hero, and the narratives are curious. Um, So let's pray as we turn to this together. Our great God and Father, again, we turn to a passage such as this and uh, a little surprised by what we find, but know that all scripture is breathed out by you. It is for our good, our correcting, our training, our instruction. These are lessons you have given to us in a memorable form so that we learn them well. Please help us, Father, do that. Would your spirit be at work so we understand and are persuaded to respond with faith to you? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, as you wander in this morning, I I don't know how you, at this moment in time, uh, feel, if I can use that, feel about God, but really... 2 Kings 4, it's quite simple, it's point. It's here to persuade you or remind you uh, that the Lord is kind. He's good to his people. And it doesn't matter who you are. He, even in hopelessness, he cares deeply for those who are nameless. He cares very much for his people. So I don't know if uh, some are here this morning and uh, still remain uh, uncertain. Why why would I want to become a Christian? Uh, I'd have to change all sorts of things in my life. Well, the Lord is good. You you, you can trust him with your life. 
perhaps more of us wander in and um, things are okay, but there's just something we're a bit resentful about. And you think, Lord, why, why have you put me through this? Why is this still enduring in life? Well, two kings four would say, no, he's good. He, he does know what you need. You, you can trust him. Let's say these, uh, these early chapters of two kings, um, we're in about uh, 850 BC, roughly is the, the, the time scale here. And there's conflict on really between uh, the followers of Yahweh and followers of Baal. Conflict wouldn't really be the quite right word. In many senses, much as Jovi's just prayed for the situation in China, you've got a, a government and a dominant regime which is hostile to the people of God. But it wants to pass even more acute, much more so than in the scenario we find ourselves in in China. Because 1 Kings 19 will tell you there's only about 7,000 believers left in the Lord, in Yahweh. Even though Israel was meant to be his people, most have rebelled and are following Baal, false god, pagan god. The kings are, the military, the government, the majority of the population are following this pagan god. And so... Here is a land which, well, we'll get to it in the food stories, but is under God's curse, judgment. It's a fairly miserable time in the life of Israel, in all honesty. It's a pretty grim time to be a believer. Now, if you were here last week, uh, in chapter 3, we looked at the realm of high politics. Uh, and it's all the kings. So we had Joram, king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and um, uh, Misha, uh, king of Moab. And it's all high politics and what's going on there. And they've had their meetings in Salzburg, and they've consulted in Washington and Downing Street. And it's all that sort of realm that fills our, uh, with the boring politics of Brexit and uh, Moab, Moabite rebellions. It's all sort of high politics in chapter 3. You get to chapter 4, and no one's got a name. Apart from Elisha, he's the figure of continuity. But you've got a widow, a woman from Shunem, some prophets, and then a man from Bar Shashalishalishalishah. Um, no one's got a name. You go from the realm of high politics, and everyone knows who it is. Chapter 4, no one's named. But they're all believers. They're all in hopeless situations at the end of their resources. And God gives them what they need. So you move from the high drama, battles, war, chariots riding into, into, into conflict to just some pretty boring, in one sense, domestic scenes. Got nothing to eat today. Childless. Dodgy meal. Get to that. Uh, run out of food again. And just not exciting scenarios, perhaps. But the Lord is there. These are people who follow him. And even though they're all nameless and their situations are all hopeless, he gives them what they need. So we're just going to walk, I'm going to walk us through the text uh, and then try and draw three little conclusions at the end. Okay, that's how it's going to work. Uh, So all these different scenarios, we'll take uh, uh, the first two and then we'll, we'll gather the last one together. So you've got desperation met with kindness, 1 to 7. Despair met with kindness, 8 to 37. Famine met with kindness, 38 to 44. But then we'll um, draw some conclusions, okay? Let's get to some of these curious stories. So first, uh, the widow and her oil in uh, verses 1 to 7. You might say desperation is met with kindness. Here is extreme poverty, chapter 4, verse 1. 
The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two sons as his slaves. Ouch. I've lost my husband. We're in severe debt by the law. Well, not quite the law of the land, but anyway, but the law of the land, not God's law particularly. But um, my two sons are going to be taken. I've got nothing then. And I wonder if you pick up a a slight tone in in verse 1. Elisha, my servant, your servant, my husband is dead. He he revered the Lord. You you know what he was like. Elisha, look, staying faithful to the Lord in, in, in this culture where if you want to move on, you've got to follow Baal. Staying faithful to you is pretty costly, Elisha. You know that, and you know my husband, and you know our family is, has done what's right, and now he's died, and I'm going to lose my two sons. It's not fair, Elisha. It's not right. What's the point in following the Lord, Elisha, if this is where we end up? I think she's a little resentful in this scenario, mixed in with her faith. I think that's very real, isn't it? If you're a Christian, rare is the person or the believer who at some point in life doesn't say, well, is it worth following you, Lord? Look, I've remained financially pure, uh, uh, unlike some of my peers or or competitors who, they'll they'll lie to advance, they'll they'll put in stupid bids to to obtain work. And everyone knows they'll not get it, but they get the contract and and then they break their word and uh, and they're disingenuous in their finances. I've never done any of that, Lord. I've been financially pure, but they're doing well and I'm not. What's the point in following you? Look, Lord, I've been sexually pure. Look, others of my generation, they've, you know, they've slept outside of marriage. They've been unfaithful to their marital partners. They're they, 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 they 20s. They just went crazy. I've never done any of that. I've, I've, been, I've, done, I've kept within the lines, Lord, and yet here I find myself... Single and unhappy, or stuck in this relationship unhappy. What good has it done me to be pure, Lord? It's not fair. I'm a bit miffed. I think it's a very real tone to what she's saying. No problem, because um, it's the old oil miracle trick uh, to sort things out. Uh, now, this is quite unusual. I don't recommend you try and try this at home. Um, but Elisha offers help. Verse 2, oh, how can I help you? Tell me what you have in your house. Well, your servant has nothing here except a small jar of olive oil. That's fine. And uh, so uh, go around and uh, gather, gather up as many sort of jars and Tupperware as you can from the neighborhood. And then just lock your door and, and whoop, uh, your kitchen will turn into a chemistry lab with all sorts of extraordinary uh, bottles uh, filled with potions. It's all oil. Uh, you can sell it and you'll be fine. And it happens. Extraordinary. I mean, clearly miraculous. So verse 7, she does it, and uh, you and your sons can live in what's left. She's fine. Now, I have to say, this is a sort of wonderful text for coming up with crazy interpretations, and I've sort of vaguely enjoyed myself reading some of the nuttier ones uh, this week. I quite enjoy, well, you know that uh, the woman, that represents the church. Uh, oil, that's the Holy Spirit. Uh, and therefore, if you give money to my church, God will bless you with his Holy Spirit. That was one interpretation. It's slightly out there. Or um, even more blatant was uh, one thing I read. If you go and borrow money from your neighbors and give it to my ministry, you'll be even richer. 
Well, that's pretty unscrupulous, isn't it? Uh, but really, I think the point is pretty simple. Here's a nameless woman. She's in a hopeless scenario. She's a widow, and she's going to lose her sons, and God provides what she needs. Because he knows what she needs. That's it. Next scenario, a little more complicated, I guess, uh, in verses uh, 8 to 37, the longer story of the Shunammite woman. Here, uh, here again is a sort of um, north, around Galilee, North Galilee sort of area. Um, here she is. Uh, she's a believer following the Lord, as is her husband. She's uh, reasonably wealthy, I guess, but still, she and her husband uh, build a granny annex of some kind for Elisha. Verse 10, well, look, you know, Elisha, he's a, he's a holy man. We, we, we recognize him. Verse 10, we'll make a small room on the roof. We'll build an extension, uh, give him uh, some basics. He can stay whenever he comes to us. Great. Uh, I mean, she spends money. I guess the more significant thing is they're aligning themselves with Elisha. Slightly dangerous thing to do. You know, kings do want him to die, but um, there it is. Uh, Oh, Elisha, he, well, he's struck by that. So he responds to her kindness, verse 13. Elisha said to his servant, Gehazi, who's going to speak to the woman, tell her, look, you've gone to all this trouble for us. Now, what can be done for you? We could speak on your behalf to the king. That's the king of Judah. He listens to me, not Israel. He hates me. Uh, or the commander of the army. Look, I have one or two little bits of influence. Verse 13, very similar to verse 2. How can I help you? Well, she says, no, look, I'm pretty happy. Uh, I've got a home among my own people. I think the point is, look, I'm content. My life is good in many ways. I I don't need anything, Elisha. I've made peace with the fact that we've not got kids, so I'm content. Well, Elisha persists. And so verse 16, at this time next year, Elisha said, you'll hold a son in your arms. And she says, well, that's not funny. No, my Lord, she objected. Verse 16, please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. Look, I've come to terms with the fact that we're childless, but don't open up that box of hurt. It's not something we we, we, we crack gags about. I mean, look, I'm okay about it, but it's still there. It's not kind to get my hopes up like that. It's cruel. But verse 17, the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son. Just as Elisha had told her. Let's pause there. Again, here is um, what do you call it? Here's a sort of a certain biblical theme to this of um, childlessness. If you read through the Bible from the beginning of the narrative, well, the fact that God miraculously provides is a recurring theme. So Abraham and, and Sarah. At least 25 years. I mean, they, they have to wait, even after God has promised that they're going to have a child and, well, into their 90s and beyond. They have a child after decades of childlessness and they have a child and, well, goodness me, Isaac has the same problem with Rebecca and they have to wait 20 years, something like that, for a child. But then God has promised it'll happen. So, you know, Jacob, uh, Esau. But these are sort of big hitters in the Bible. This is the main theme, the main narrative. And then you get it throughout the scriptures. So at the beginning of 1 Samuel, Hannah and Elkanah can't have a child. But then the Lord miraculously provides Samuel, who grows up to be the great prophet over, um, over Israel. And you get into the New Testament and... Uh, 
you, you have Zechariah and Elizabeth, again, well into pensionable age, never able to have child, and then well, the angel comes and says, no, you'll have a child, you'll have John the Baptist. And it's quite a common theme in one sense, when God is going to do something new, it's often there's a childlessness, and then there's a miracle. But these are all big hitters. These are all sort of, you know, uh, mainstream characters, important characters in salvation history. The difference here is, he's a nameless woman from Shunem, married to a nameless man, and they have a child who has no name, who does nothing. And in one sense, it's a pointless story in the Bible. Because they're not a big hitter. They're not significant in the main narrative of the scriptures. And you think, why is it here? It's here because, well, because God cares for all his people. And you may feel nameless and insignificant. But he knows that he cares. He doesn't just care for the heroes of faith. He cares for you and me. And that's a nice story, and if it ended there, it would be super. But it doesn't. So you get to uh, end of verse 17, or just as Elisha told her. Then verses 18 to 20, this is not so good, of course. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers, and he said to his father, my head, my head. And, um, goodness knows what's happening medically there, a clot or something, I don't know. His father told a servant to carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. And you read it and think, well, what is that? What's that? The woman had said she was perfectly content, she'd made her peace, but Lord, you, you give her a child, and oh, wow, and then you take him away as a child. Well, I mean, we might just call that cruel. Or at least bewildering. Why would you do that? Well, two things I think worth noticing here. One is her behavior. And then secondly, what perhaps is God's purpose? First, her behavior in response to this death. It's pretty unusual. But you get to Hebrews 11 in the New Testament. The sort of long list of heroes of faith. You might want to call it that. Uh, of the Old Testament. You get the, 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 all the names, there's Abraham, there's Moses, etc. Then you get, and, and some women by faith receive their children back from the dead. And they're not named. But I think it must be referring to uh, 1 Kings 17, a widow, not named. And here in 2 Kings 4, the Shunammite woman, not named. By faith, they receive their children back from the dead. Now, Therefore, Hebrews 11 would say, you, you, you want to notice her faith. She gets something right in her faith. And in what sense could she be an example to us? And I think it would be, she just persists. Hers is a, a fairly stubborn sort of faith. So what do you make of all this? The, the, the child dies. Then verse 21, she puts him on the bed and, and shuts the door. Verse 22, she called her husband and said, please send one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly in return. Does, does, does the husband know the child has died? We're not even sure at this moment. It's not obvious in, in, in the dialogue. Uh, husband, verse 23, well, why go to him today? It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. Those are the days you'd normally go to church. So why are you bothering to go today? Verse 23, it's all fine. It's fine, fine, fine. It's all all right. I'm just not interested in talking to you right now. 
verse 24, so off she goes, and, and she, uh, off she goes to go and see uh, Elijah. But first of all, at the servant, Gehazi comes out. Elisha says to Gehazi, verse 26, well, look, go out and meet the woman and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything's fine. It's all fine, she said. I don't think she's just in, in a sort of weird denial. She's just not interested in her husband. She's not interested in Gehazi. She wants Elisha. So verse 27, when she reached the man of God at the mountain, she just grabbed hold of him. She took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, no, no, leave her alone. She's clearly in distress. And not unreasonably, she says, uh, the woman says to Elisha, verse 28, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? No. Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? But right now, I'm just holding on to you. I know you can take a barren womb and get, put a child in it. And I'm figuring you could bring back my child. So I'm not interested in my husband. They say, it's all fine. I'm not interested in Gehazi. It's all fine. I'm just holding on to you. And so Elisha says to Gehazi, well, you, take, you run and, and take my staff and put the staff on the boy and, and that'll work. And verse 30, the woman says, look, I'm not interested in Gehazi. I'm not interested in the staff. I want you. I, I just think, you're it. You're my last hope. I, tr- I know who you are. You're God's prophet. You're the one I need. It's a slightly manic, is that right? It's dogged, persistent faith here. And the comment, I read this, and I think this is such a great sentence that some one writer put on it. He said, you, re- you look at this woman and you realize faith is not serenity. I thought that was a very shrewd observation to make here. Here is a hero of faith, according to Hebrews 11, or a heroine. And faith is not serenity. Faith, a biblical faith is not, well, the circumstances of life come upon me, but I just sort of serenely move through them all. I just serenely move through. I'm like a swan. I just elegantly go through and, you know, distress is at work. <laughs> and uh, illness, sickness, death at home. <laughs> and I just serenely, faith is not like that, according to 2 Kings 4. Faith is not serenity. Here's a woman who says, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't understand why the Lord would do this. I'm just clinging to him. I'm just clinging. But it's certainly not serenity. So finally, Elisha goes, this uh, sort of acted out, I'm going to breathe life into you sort of scenario, tries it once, sort of works, tries it again, the boy sneezes, comes back to life, weird, weird way of happening. But at the end of the story, of this story, you think, okay, well, that's marvelous, but why, Lord? What's the point of that death and resurrection I mean, you've put this woman through real turmoil. You could have just not make the boy die. That would have been fine. That, that would have worked for all involved. Uh, how's your day, love? Bit stressful, died, came back to life. Mum was really upset. We could have done without that sort of day. Why? Well, of course, the answer is we don't know. And sometimes the Lord is very perplexing. Why, why, why have you put us through that? Could have done without that. Sometimes his ways are just perplexing. Here in Two Kings, you do get some sort of answer, though. A bit more than just, golly, you're perplexing, but we've got nowhere else to go. I'm going to cling to you. Flick on a couple of pages. We'll you to chapter 8. 
We're a number of years later here. There's been an enormous famine in the land. Uh, They've been besieged, invaded. We'll get to all these things. But just look at chapter 8. This is years later, after a famine. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he'd restored to life, go away with your family and stay away for a while, wherever you can, because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. The woman proceeded to do as the man of God said. She and her family went away and stayed in the land of the Philistines for seven years. At the end of the seven years, she came back from the land of the Philistines and went to appeal to the king for her house and land. The king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, and had said, tell me about all the great things Elisha has done. Well, just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Gehazi said, this is the woman, my lord, the king. And this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. The king asked the woman about it, and she told him. Well, then he assigned an official to her case and said to him, give back everything that belonged to her, including all the income from her land, from the day she left the country until now. Well, it's just a bizarre little vignette that's included. But the woman could easily, of course, have asked Lord, why did you put me through this drama and the pain and the trauma of my son dying and coming back to life? And the answer she got at the time was, well, years later, when she's lost everything in the famine, she comes back and the king says, oh, because I've heard about what happened with you and your son that day, here we go, have it all back. Ah, well, this never would have happened had I not been through that trauma. Oh, right. Blessing has come through her bewildering pain and her desperate faith. Now, that is always true, but we don't always see it. It is always true that the Lord will allow us to experience bewildering trials, turmoil. That will always happen. We don't always get the answer, even seven years later. Why? Many of these things in life, the answer only comes when we see him face to face. But it's always true. The Lord is working for our good, even in the bewildering pain of life. Desperation met with kindness, kindness, despair met with kindness. Uh, Very briefly, these two food stories. We take both of them together uh, back in chapter 4, verses uh, 38 to 44. So the presenting issue is famine. Chapter 4, verse 38, Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the region. So what do you do? Well, um, well, you have a good hearty stew. Of course, that's what you want. Someone throws some um, extra flavoring into the pot, some gourds. uh, And the immediate response to this uh, culinary delight is uh, verse 40. The stew is poured for the men and they began to eat it. They cried out, man of God, there's death in the pot. Uh, And they couldn't eat it. I don't think it's just bovril, i.e. there's something unpleasant um, in the pot. Uh, because, verse 41, it's harmful uh, until Elisha gets to work on it. Now, what are the gourds? I, I don't know why. Mo- all the commentators seem to agree that it's colisynthus citrullus. Well, that's because they all just copy from one another. I don't actually know. But if that's the case, there's common agreement. It's a pretty extreme laxative. 
So someone has, you know, all this big meal and someone has chucked in, you know, a kilo of laxatives. You can imagine they're all tucking in and then very quickly, oh, they all start cramping up. There's death in the pot and I'm out of here as they all run to the conveniences uh, uh, nearby. I think that's probably, that's probably realistically something like that is going on. No problem, says Elisha. Uh, I'll just um, consult my uh, prue leaf and uh, add some flour, or whatever it is, and um, he sorts that out. Okay. Uh, then verse 42, another food issue. A man comes along, not named, from Baal Shalisha, and uh, he's not named, but he's faithful to the Lord. He's coming from Baal Central, the center of sort of Baal worship, but he's got some food and he's come to uh, feed the remnant of those who are faithful, the prophets. Well, give it to the people, says Elisha. Well, I've got 20 loaves, he says, verse 43. There's at least 100 men, plus women, plus children. 20 loaves, he ain't going to cut it, Elisha. Elisha says, let's just do as I say, give it to the people. For this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. Then the man he said it before the people, and they ate, and there were some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Oh, right. Because the Lord, in both these cases, he meets the famine. A famine upon the land, because it's cursed. Deuteronomy 28, 29, if you disobey me, Israel, there'll be famine in the land. But he provides for his people. Because it doesn't matter if you're nameless and your situation is hopeless. The Lord is kind. He gives his people what they need. Let me try and draw some sense out of this with three, three brief comments. Okay, these three are there down on the sheet again. Don't be surprised at trials. Your father knows what you need. And Jesus shows greater kindness. Brief comments on both, on all those uh, three. Look, first then, don't be surprised at trials. This passage does not say, got a problem? Got a problem? Just pray and the Lord will sort it out. Got economic problems? Right. Just, uh, just pray. Ka-ching! You'll find an oil well of uh, some kind, uh, and all will be well. Someone you love died? No problem. Pray. Ka-ching! They come back to life. Uh, you've cooked something, and it's a bit of a disaster, and you've got people coming around for dinner. No worries. Just, just pray, and ka-ching! It, it'll turn cordon bleu uh, in the blink of a, a microwave switch. That is not what it's saying. And nowhere in the Bible are you promised, or we promised quick fixes. And so just let me remind you how the New Testament presents expectations for believers, just from different writers. So 1 Peter 4, Peter, many will be looking at 1 Peter, midweek, uh, Bible study groups. 1 Peter 4, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come upon you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Suffering before glory, that's what happened for Jesus. Don't be surprised, Christians, if that's what it looks like for you. Suffering then glory, don't be surprised at that. Paul in Acts 14, he goes around, he goes around in um, the churches and Luke tells us, Luke will say, that Paul went around strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul with his colleagues. That's normal Christian living. We go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 6, Paul will say, look, we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. Suffering then glory. So don't be surprised that that is the pattern. 2 Kings 4, here are God's people, a small remnant 
of believers in a land which has largely rejected the Lord and is hostile to them. It's not easy. But God gives them what they need. I mean, it's not a bottomless pot of brew, a brew of stew, even, um, even when it's fixed. They're going to have to find another meal the next day, the next week. You know, the struggles go on. Don't be surprised. But alongside that, look, your father knows what you need. And I wonder if, if the New Testament had a commentary on 2 Kings 4, it might be Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me remind you, Jesus would put it in these words in Matthew 6. Do not worry, saying, well, what should we eat? Or what should we drink? Or what should we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Your Father knows what you need. And Jesus would say, look, this is, this is normal. This is the norm of kingdom living. Of course, there are exceptions when you've got everything you need and you never, you know, you find praying quite hard because life is so straightforward. There'll be exceptions when there, there are God's people who starve in, in persecuted regions. Yeah, there'll be exceptions, but here's the norm of the kingdom. Your father knows what you need and he'll give you what you need. And in many ways, that is the simple message of 1 Kings 4. God knows what his people need. They may be nameless. Their situations may be hopeless. But he knows what they need and he gives it to them. Your father knows what you need. And then lastly, Jesus shows greater kindness. You read these miracles of Elisha, and we've said from the beginning of this little series, Elisha, perhaps more than many characters in the Old Testament, he's meant to be a shadow, a picture, a, a hint of what Jesus is going to look like. You know, Elisha, like Jesus, is baptized at the Jordan River. The Spirit comes upon him. Both of them have. Elisha come before them to tell the people that the, the greater one is coming. Uh, Elijah before Elisha. Elijah, John the Baptist, that's who he is, uh, according to the New Testament, before Jesus. I mean, the, the parallels are, are drawn pretty clear. And these sort of miracles, they're a bit familiar to us if you read one of the gospel accounts. So you read of Jesus doing a, taking food, five loaves and two fishes and feeding 5,000 with them. Because Jesus is God's ultimate prophet that Elijah was pointing to. But of course he's better so he doesn't just do a few hundred, it's 5,000. There is a sort of how much more element to all the miracles that Jesus does. And so you read in Mark 5 of bereaved Jairus, saying, Jesus, can you come? And Jesus goes to the house of Jairus and shuts the door, keeps the crowds out and raises the young child. But because he's Jesus, just doesn't do it once. So you read, in Luke 7, that he comes across the widow of Nain, the widow in Nain, which is just down the road from Shunem, geographically, that's kind of the same place, just two side, two, two halfway around a little hill. Oh, right, the sort of same place, finds a widow and raises her son as well, and then with Lazarus, and because, well, how much more will Jesus 
perform these sort of miracles. And, and of course, he knows the pain of his people. Jesus knows that trials will come and says, yeah, there's suffering now, but glory later. Whoever will take up his, follow after me must take up his cross. But suffering now, glory later, says the pattern. But of course, more than Elisha here, Jesus says, oh, I'll do everything you need. I'll live the life you can never live. I'll pay for your sins in a way you never could. I'll die for you so you can live again. Not just a resuscitation to live, such as this young boy, but a dying and rising to eternal life so you'll never die again. So there's, of course, greater kindness, greater power to the provision that Jesus gives. He says to you and me, look, I've done everything you need to get you to heaven. I'll provide what you need here and now. I don't know how you, well, he knows. I don't know how you feel, but Jesus would say, I know how you feel. And look, please hear me rightly. Even if you feel hopeless, my sheep know my, na- my voice. I know them by name. No one is nameless to me. I will give you what you need. Because not only is the Lord true, not only is he powerful, He's kind. He's kind. Let me lead us in prayer. Our great God and Father, there are many things which are strange to us in these stories. Although in many ways we can recognize the human responses of uh, frustration, that following you hasn't been easy, of uh, resolute, determined faith, nothing serene about it. It's hard work being faithful and keeping on trusting you if you're the woman from Shunem. But Father, even though there's much in these stories which is strange and we can recognize the human responses, thank you that what is clear is that you're good. You know your people. They don't need to be famous or important or significant. You know the deep needs of all these nameless individuals and you give them what they need. So Father, even in our trials and through our trials, would we know that, believe that, trust that? It may be years before we know why. You've allowed us to endure something. It may only be when we see you face to face. But Father, would we trust you that you're good? You know what we need. And supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've provided for our greatest needs, forgiveness of sins and a life after death. And so we praise you in looking to him. We can know you're good and trust you as one who is kind. Amen.